we are, as Dustin mentioned, transitioning to a new, to a new um, um, sermon series. And, and I love where we've been. We've been looking at this offspring, the, this promise of this one's coming, and now we have uh, the arrival. So you'll see that uh, once we jump into the book of Matthew, you'll see this arrival. And um, to bridge that gap, I want you to see, you'll see this when we start the series, but I want you to go ahead and see how Matthew starts and why it's important for us to go where we are last week and this week. So if you look at Matthew 1, uh, it says, The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, why would Matthew start out this way? Why would he... These are questions when you're reading your Bible, you should be asking these kinds of questions. Why would Matthew start out with the son of David, son of Abraham? Why is that so important? To a Jewish audience, why would they care that he's a son of David, a son of Abraham? Well, last week, we, um, we spent time looking at Genesis 12 where God pulls out Abraham and he makes this covenant, this agreement with Abraham that he's going to do these things with him. And he said, I will make your name great, I will make your offspring, you know, more than you can number. And he makes these promises to Abraham. Uh, and and, and um, this morning you're going to see that God pulls out David. And he makes some promises to David that connects this Christ, this Messiah, the Savior to David and Abraham. The, this this one who was going to come, this offspring from back in Genesis 3.15, had to be somebody that was from this family tree of Abraham and David. Had to be. So this lineage is really important. And you remember, we we're just talking about, really the Old Testament is about one family. And uh, this one family, so when you're reading it, you're mainly reading about um, just this one family. Now you'll see crazy friends... Distant relatives come along, um, you know, they'll, they'll jump into the story, but it's really just about one family. And this family from the Old Testament is not much different than our family. Um, uh, you know, you love each other, you, you, you fight with each other, you forgive each other, you've, you've failed each other. Um, it's a pretty messed up family. And we all have those relatives that we know, like, you're like, oh yeah, that, that's that's the part of the family that's kind of really messed up. <laughs> and, and that's basically the Old Testament. It's talking about one family. And so if you would turn with me to 2 Samuel 7, we're going to look at the Davidic covenant today. Covenant just means it's a contract between two parties. Um, there's some stipulations usually, and I'll explain some of that in a minute, that here you're going to see there's, there's two types um, in the Bible, and there's one that's conditional, one that's unconditional. And here this morning, we want to see one that's unconditional for the most part. So let me, um, let me pray for us as we dive in the 2 Samuel chapter 7 this morning. Father, I pray that uh, this morning, uh, first, I just, just love hearing those pages turn, Lord. Just, it's one of the sweetest sounds that a pastor can hear is pages um, of a Bible being... Um, just flipped and turned. And so, Lord, just thank you for that sound this morning. I pray that, that we would just, um, that we would love your word, that we would be a church that doesn't check out during the sermon, 
that the music points us to this time, that everything is central around your word. And Lord, that, uh, that it would change us, that, um, that it would be um, uh, penetrating our hearts. And so Lord, I pray for our minds right now, that our, our, our minds would just be, just be ready. Lord, I pray for my mind as my brain is just, just kind of scattered this morning, thinking about just my leg and just sitting down. And, uh, and so Lord, I pray you help me to stay focused Lord, I pray that we would leave this place changed, that we would love Jesus more when we leave than we did when we came in. And may all glory be directed to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So Friday when I, when I hurt my Achilles, one of the professors who just, he's a good friend, um, he um, loaded, loaded me up in his truck and brought me over here. And it was just divinely, like I, I had crutches here. I think Crystal, I had crutches. I brought crutches for you a long time ago. I never took them home, so they were here. So he brought me here, and he walked in and saw my desk in that front office. Um, just had my Bible open. I had um, uh, my the sermon outline for, for today. And as a professor, that kind of intrigued him. He looked at it, and he said, so wow. He said, you kind of put together your sermon. And, and this, he's not a believer. Um, so he's like, he's like, you put your... Uh, Basically, you're, you're do what I do. Like, you, you know, you outline and you're making notes. And I said, yes, you know, that's what I do every week. I, you know, I, I take that time really seriously. And, and he, said, he said, yeah, he said, but uh, he said, you don't really, he said, you don't really have uh, a test that you give them. Like, I know students flip out and I give them a test. He said, you don't, you don't do anything like that, do you? And I just said, said no, I don't, I don't need to give them a test. The test is however, how they live their life. And that's really like what scripture is about. It's, it changes you. That I, I don't need to give you, you know, because part of it is, is I'm not so concerned that you retain the information that I'm giving you today. What I'm concerned with is that you apply the information and you allow God to change you from inside out. That you begin to live like Christ. And so this morning we get this incredible um, privilege of going through, this is one of the most important is definitely the most important passage in 2 Samuel. It is arguably one of the most important passages in the entire Old Testament. 2 Samuel chapter 7. This should be one that you just know it's familiar to you. So let's start in verse 1. Um, so here we have David. Uh, David's had many victories already. There's a little bit of peace. Um surrounding him and you'll see that here in these first three verses so this is this is david's desire in these first three verses we'll see his desire verse one now when the king lived in his house and the lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies the king said to nathan the prophet see now i dwell in a house of cedar but the ark of god dwells in a tent and Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. And so here, here what I want you to see, David, um, God has pulled him out. He was a shepherd boy. He was rejected by Samuel. Samuel was his prophet. Samuel's job was to go find the next king. King Saul was a terrible king. God said, He can't be my king anymore. Go find the next king. He's going to be a son of Jesse. 
And guess, Jesse falls into that line of Abraham. And so, you keep tracing down, you got, you've got Jesse. One of Jesse's sons was going to be the next king. Samuel looks at these boys and says, that's got to be the one. God says, nope, it's not him. Stop looking at his outward appearance. Man looks at outward appearance. God looks at the heart. There's somebody there who has a heart like God's. It's not him, it's not him, it's not him, it's not him, it's not him. Finally, Samuel says, hey, do you have any other boys? And Jesse says, I've got my youngest, he's out in the fields. He's a shepherd. Go get him. So he brings him. That's the one. God says, anoint him. That is going to be the next king. And so God has pulled him out. God has really taken him from the fields as a shepherd to the, the king. And now he's got this, he, he mentions here his house was built. He dwells in his house made of cedar. So it's really just, it's this really nice house. And, and, and so he realizes, though, that there's this ark. And maybe, like, you've heard of the Ark of the Covenant. And this is kind of where God's presence dwelt. And um, the Jews really cared about this. And so uh, David wanted to get it back. Um, they had left it. And he wanted it back. And, and he wanted to build a house for God. And he thought, I've got this nice house. But God lives in this box. It's time I build God a big house. All right? And then so Nathan is a prophet, um, and, and, and Nathan says, go do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But, verse 4, um, it says, but that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to my shepherd or to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? And so here's this picture God's coming to Nathan saying, Hey, listen, you go tell David things, but I don't need it. Uh, and, and David's got like this, this thought, like, I'm, God's done so much for me, I need to do something for him. And, and, and here, um, God has said, hey, I, I've, when we were wandering through the wilderness between Egypt and the promised land, I lived in a tent. Like, I don't, I don't, need, your, I don't need your generosity, thanks. David, but I'm, I'm good to go. Uh, and it, it's this idea of, um, you've heard the phrase like quid pro quo, like that Latin phrase means like something for something. That is how we often come to God. And I remember being a new believer. And, I, and you know, as a new believer, I had terrible theology. Um, I just knew that God loved me and I wanted to love him back, but I didn't know how it all worked out. And I remember as a, as a new believer thinking that like, I needed to give things back to God. Because he's done so much for me, now I need to do something for him. And God says, you, that's not how it works. And, and God is going to continue to lavish upon David here. He's going to make it really miserable. It'd be, like, it'd be like if someone gave you a Christmas gift. Now, not, not, not like a family member, because, you know, they have to give you a Christmas gift, right? 
But let's say somebody that, that you weren't expecting to give you a Christmas gift. What's probably going through your heart and mind when you get that gift? Could be like, oh no, like they gave me a gift. And what? I don't have what? Anything to give them. So now like they're one up me, right? Now I owe them some. So there's, for most of us, you have this kind of work theology where somebody gives you something, now you're going to be, I got to give something back so we can even it out again. We don't like to owe anybody anything. We want, we want to just be even. Um, and students are saying, well, I owe Marshall a lot. Uh, guess what? They're going to want something back from you too. And so you're going to owe it back. But with God and salvation, it doesn't work that way. Look at these verses. Isaiah 66. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? So here it's, it's this reminder. What are you going to give the God that God doesn't already have? He's got the heavens. He doesn't need your little house. Are you kidding me? What could we possibly give to God that's not already His? Acts 17 reminds us the same thing. Acts 17, Paul's given this incredible uh, just argument here in this passage. And he says, he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. One of the greatest things that you can begin to just believe and let meditate in your life is this, that God does not need you. It's one of the greatest problems in this country is we think that the world revolves around us, me, you. Guess what? It doesn't. And you're going to have a lot less anxiety and depression, fear, bitterness when you realize this world does not revolve around you. That we should be theocentric. God at the center of our lives. When we start with God at the center, man, a lot of our problems just go to the side. This is just, I'm just preaching to myself. So Friday, I, I blow out my leg, and I'm like, man, like, it's going to be miserable for me. And I'm thinking about my wife, because I'm a big baby. She's got to take care of me now. And I'm just like, man, it's bad. But Thursday, um, I was at the, uh, the NICU with a little baby. And, um, and so I'm just thinking, Friday, as, my, as I start, you know, pouting about myself, um, that I know it's going to be a long journey, my brain just went back to the baby in the NICU. And I just thought, it's not that bad. My Achilles will heal. You know, if I'm on crutches or a wheelchair, something happens, I lose this leg. This world is not about me. And, and when I start with God and that God is preeminent, He is everything, then my problems begin to shrink. And, uh, and so here David is like, God has done so much for me, I want to do something back for him. And I think we have part of that 
mindset in our salvation theology, our soteriology, that we think God has saved me, and I want you to check your heart this morning. Why do you do good things as a Christian? This is such an important question to answer. Why do you do good things? Um, it, do you do good things because you're trying to pay God back for what He's done for you? If that's your answer, I, I would challenge you that you have a, a, a wrong view of your salvation. Because the moment you try to pay Him back, now you have a salvation of works. And, and, and we should have a salvation of grace. That God saved you. Why? Not because you're good. Not because you're going to do something for Him. Because of His grace. His unmerited grace that He loved you. And, and, and He wanted to save you. That's why He saved you. That, it's not because you were good and He's like, if I saved you, I know he'll do a lot for me, and, and it'll be great for the kingdom of God. No, he saved you because he just wanted to, because that's why it's called grace. That's what grace means, something you don't, receiving something you don't deserve. The moment you start paying it back, it's no longer grace, but works, that it was justice. And, and, and so I encourage you that don't try to pay God back back for what he's done for you 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 can't and you don't want to do that so a better a biblical reason of why we do good works is, is because it's pleasing to him it's it's to show thankfulness if you want to show him something it's thankfulness it's not to pay it back i want to i just want to say thank you for what you've done for me and, and and i know that my good works bring glory to him and and it could be a light to someone else, and they may want to follow Christ. But it cannot be about paying him back, and that's what David wants to do. David wants to pay him back for what he's done for him, that he pulled him out from being a shepherd boy, and now given him, he's the king, he has peace from his surrounding enemies. God says, you can't pay me back. In fact, I'm going to make it so miserable for you. I'm, 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 you think I'm done lavishing all my grace and mercies upon you. If you think I was blessing you before, just wait till, wait till I'm done with you, David. And so God makes it just so clear to David, like, you cannot pay me back. And, and you're going to see in the Bible, there's, there's these covenants, these promises, and sometimes they're conditional, sometimes they're not. Conditional meaning... If you do this, then I will do this. Like, if you cut my grass, I will pay you $20, $30. I don't know what that costs these days. I cut my own grass. I have no idea what it costs. It's probably more than $20. <laughs> and so here's a conditional promise. Here's an example. In Exodus 19. Exodus 19, God is speaking to Moses, and he's up on this mountain, and he makes this conditional promise. See if you can see the condition here. Verse 5, chapter 19. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. You see the condition there? If you 
obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession. You, you follow me? So if they obey his voice, then they shall be treasured people. They'll be a kingdom of priests. Uh, and when you come down the mountain, Moses tells them this. And they go, we can, we'll do everything God says. And you'll see within a few verses, they're already diso- disobedient. Covenant's broken. You already begin to see that there's no kingdom of priests. That God is already beginning to separate the priests from the, everyone else. There's categories for people. There's a condition made here in Exodus 19. Well, last week you saw God just saying, I will, I will, I will. There's five times in Genesis 12 where God said, I will. It's not, if you do this, then I will do this. God just made this unconditional promise to Abraham saying, I will, I will make your name great. I will make your offspring. You, you remember that? And so here you're going to see the same thing. You're going to see six unconditional promises or covenants that God makes to, to David in these next verses. So let's begin to look at these. Verse 8, 2 Samuel 7. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And so here you, you see that he's already beginning. It's like David's saying, man, you've done so much for me, I want to do something back. And God says, I'm going to make it miserable for you. If, if you've got that kind of theology, I'm going to lavish so many more things upon you. Just so where you just say surrender. And that's what should happen at salvation, is that you just surrender. You quit trying to pay off God, and you just embrace His grace, and you just receive it, and you go, God, I, I can't pay it back. I, I just got to surrender and just embrace what you wanted, your kindness and mercy. And so here, God wants to make His name great. If you go to Israel today, I, I went several years ago to Israel, such a cool experience. David lived, you know, uh, over a thousand years before Christ. So we're looking at like 3,000 years ago. Parents are still naming their kid David today. You realize that? This is a Hebrew name. And, and, and you still see people naming uh, children David today. In, in Israel, David's still the greatest king that they've ever had. You go back today and you say, who's the greatest king? David. They would love to have the same kind of reign that they had with David. They'd love to have that now. Looking for King David. And so God's saying, I'm going to make your name great. So that's the first one. Second one, verse 10. I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appoint that appointed judges over my people Israel. So here he's saying, not only am I going to make your name great, I'm going to give you a place. And that was part of what he did with Abraham. So this is tying together Abraham and David. You remember with Abraham, I'm going to give you a land. Remember, that's what he promised him. So I want you to go to this land. He didn't tell him where it was. A little later in Genesis, we'd have seen those uh, boundaries. Well, here he's saying, I'm going to give you this land. It's going to belong to you. 
So that's another promise. And he's just saying, I will. There's no, if you do this, then this will happen. It's just, I will. Uh, the next one's found in 11b, same verse. Um, it says, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So first, make you a great name. Uh, he will appoint a place for you. Uh, the third one you see here is that he will give you rest. Now, we saw in verse 1 that he already said that you have rest from all your enemies. But here he's like affirming it. Um, you're going to have rest um, from, all your, from, from, from everyone that you've ever battled with. You're going to have rest. And King David does. He has peace from here on out, um, outside. Now, he has some family strife. Um, but with enemies, um, uh, this, you'll see this being fulfilled in his life. Uh, we keep going in verse 12. We'll see the, uh, the fourth one. And this is the one that, and if you guys have been here all summer, I pray that like, like a light should go off when you read verse 12. When, you're, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up uh, your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Now, if you were just reading the Bible from the beginning, and you got to 2 Samuel, and you've been a part of the series, what word in verse 12 should you get excited about seeing? Offspring. Uh, you're going, wait a second, God must be doing something here. Here's that word offspring. Whenever you see that in the Old Testament, God is doing something. This is that family tree I'm talking about. God is connecting David here back to Abraham, back to Genesis 3 with Adam. That this must be this child that's going to come and crush the head of the serpent. That's going to restore everything that Adam and Eve had broken. And so here, God is still writing the story. And which should also tell us, David is not the man. David is not the, the hero that the Israelites, mankind is looking for. And when you see him at certain parts, when you see him like with, with uh, David and Goliath, you might think, this has got to be the man. And man, I just read that story. I just get so excited. But you see, not long after that, David has a major, major moral failure. And David's not the hero that we're looking for. But his offspring is. That he's going to bring up this offspring. And he's going to establish his kingdom. Now you remember, there's no kingdom at this point. Because before Saul, there was no king. You've got to have a king to be a kingdom, right? So God's mentioned judges before this. So before the king, they had this period of judges where you have like this ruler figure. But there was no king. Saul was first king. But in order to have like a kingdom, you've got to have like lineage. Saul's son never sat on a throne. So there was no kingdom. The kingdom removed from Saul, given to David. And so now there's this promise that your son is going to reign. This offspring is going to reign. He's going to be king. And so you know that David's going, man, that's going to be awesome. I can't wait just to start this dynasty of kingdom. So there's this promise that he's going to raise up his offspring. Number five, verse 13. He will build a house for my name. Okay, so that's language that David's already used. David wanted to build a house. But God said, no, no, I don't want you to build me a house. But here, this offspring apparently is going to build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Wow, that's huge. So here's this promise, this covenant that God makes to this offspring. 
that this offspring is going to build a house. So the next king is a guy named um, Solomon. Maybe you've heard of Solomon. The Bible says that Solomon was the most wealthy, wisest man ever to live, even to this day. The most wealthy, the most wise man ever. Um, and Solomon built this incredible house for God called the temple. Um, you can go back today to Israel and see remnants of it. Um, it's not there. It was destroyed. Um, and, and, and so, um, but uh, Solomon built God a house. Um, and, his, and he was the next king, so he's part of this kingdom. But uh, this throne didn't last forever. So it gets kind of weird here in 13 and 14. Because 13, we start, you know, we see the word kingdom forever. There's some problems because in 587 B.C., uh, the Babylonians came in and conquered Israel. And there was no king who reigned. So now it seems like maybe God doesn't know all the future. Maybe he, this was his desire, but God uh, can't keep his word. Okay, that's what it might appear like. Um, because even today in Israel, there is, no, the, there is no king from the line of David right now in Israel. So what's going on here? So let's look at, let's look at one more. Um, in verse 14, we're going to see this last one. It says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke um, to David. And so here's this picture that this one who's going to come, I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. And, and, and that's kind of that role that the king would play with, uh, like with God. God would have this special relationship with the king of Israel. And, um, and, and, and you'll see that in some of the Psalms language that uh, David would, would speak in that way. And here you, you see it's really this idea of Solomon. Solomon wasn't a great king. Um, he started out a good king, but then he had some epic moral failures. And he commits iniquity. And so God disciplines him. And from there on out, they, have, they start having um, enemies come in and take over. Uh, and it just begins to unravel and falls apart. And not long after Solomon, it's really hard to follow the line of David. Um, and, and in 587, when Babylon, Babylon comes in and conquers their Syrian army, um, it's really difficult. And by the time you get to Christ, um, there, there's really that line of David's not there. King Herod was not from the line of David. And so, here David's receiving all this, and then I, I love in verse 18, um, this is the response. Like, when you just hear the promises of God, 
it should lead you to be overwhelmed. And that's what happens in verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? That, that's what God is calling us this morning to. That, that if you don't have that kind of view of God this morning, that you're just overwhelmed with how kind and merciful that he's been to you, then you, there's a problem that you have with understanding how sinful you are. That you don't understand the depth of your sin. Um, because when you understand how sinful you are, and that God is so holy and righteous, and that he's done anything in your life, uh, and, and if, if that response isn't this kind of response, then you have a misunderstanding of who God is and who you are. That when you have a proper understanding of who you are and a proper understanding of who God is, it should always lead you to a similar response. God, why would you do anything good in my life? Why have you been so kind to me? Why have you saved me? I rebel from you all the time, and yet you never turn your back from me. That should be the kind of response that we have. We should be overwhelmed with his amazing grace. So when you look at these promises that God makes to David, it, some are kind of clear like early on when I said he's going to make a great name for him and how David's name is still great to the day. But some of these is like God didn't fulfill. It's like he, he's still waiting for the Jews to figure it out and with their conditions and and. God's waiting for them to be obedient people, and if they would finally be obedient to God, then God would establish his kingdom back. And that's what some people are waiting on. They're waiting on, like, this line of David to be restored in Israel, and God's going to restore the throne and give it back to Israel. And, and I really think that they've missed the point that this passage is trying to make for us this morning. Because the point that it's trying to make is that some of these promises are fulfilled in David, but really it's, it's, not a, it's, it's really more of a promised future than the promise of reality. And so the future promise, if, we, if you look at these, and here I'll put them all up on the screen. So I'll make a great name, I will appoint a place for my people, I will give you rest from all your enemies, I will raise up your offspring, I will establish the throne of this kingdom forever, I will be to him a father. Really these are all fulfilled in Christ. And when you think about these in the mindset of Christ, in some way, yeah, I mean, they're for that moment with David and uh, uh, Solomon, but really they're, they're completely fulfilled in Christ. I want you to see this. So I will make you a great name, Philippians 2.9. Look at this. Therefore God has highly exalted him, who's the him? It's Jesus, and bestowed on him the, the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So this is an all-inclusive promise that Jesus, his name is going to be different. That everyone in the earth, doesn't matter what nation, doesn't matter if you have another little king, you will bow down to King Jesus. That he is this, he is this promise being fulfilled to David. That there's going to be this one who has a great name. It's it, it's it's. From the line of David, Jesus, that Jesus is the greatest name of all, that everyone will bow down to the name of Jesus. Secondly, you see that 
He says, I will appoint a place for my people. Look what Jesus says in uh, John 14, uh, verse 2 and 3. He says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If we're not so, would I have told you that I go and what? Prepare a place for you. So Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's saying, I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to, uh, take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. So this is not a, a, a location here on earth of uh, this place of Israel. Jesus is saying, I am that place. I'm going to draw you to me. That land is great. I gave it to, to my people, but it's being fulfilled in me. And I'm going to draw you to me. I'm preparing a place for you. So if, if you are a follower of Christ, this is something you can claim. This is a promise to you that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for you this morning. And that he's faithful. He's going to come again and he's going to take you, church, to himself. I cannot wait for that day. But listen, it's not because I'm waiting for that mansion in the sky. And, and, and I think sometimes we get caught up in like the gifts of heaven, the streets of gold and the mansion. I don't, I don't care about any of that stuff. And when you see Christ in his glory, I guarantee you, you're not going to be caring about your mansion, your house in heaven, streets of gold. You're going to see Christ and you're going to be so overwhelmed with the beauty of Christ, the radiance of him, what he's done for you. Then you're going to be like, I'll, I'll get the house ready later. I'll, I, I'll go see where my bedroom is later. I don't care right now. I just want to be with Jesus. You, you college students, you came in last week. You got, your, you got your dorm ready. Maybe you got your apartment ready. Jesus is already getting it ready. Then you're, you're not going to need to get it ready when you go there. It's because I, 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 I may just sleep outside. I'm going to just sleep at his feet. I don't need to go back. Because I care. I, I, if when you start defining heaven... And you start by naming all the, the stuff in heaven, you've missed the point of heaven. So, and listen, I'm going to be harsh on you for a moment. Heaven is not about seeing, primarily seeing all the loved ones that you've lost. So if that's what gets you all excited about heaven, and, and I'm telling you, I cannot wait. I don't know how it works, but I cannot wait to see my family and friends in heaven. But if that's like what you're so excited about, that's number one thing that gets you excited about heaven, you've missed the picture of heaven. Heaven is about Jesus, him exalted, all nations, all tongues, singing praises to him. And yes, at some point, I don't know how it works, but you may see those people and, and get to spend time with them, and it's going to make heaven even sweeter just by singing with my grandma and friends who we've lost along the way, and lift up the name of Jesus. But make sure Jesus is at the top when you start talking about heaven. I know that sounds harsh. You can talk to me afterwards. I'm just telling you, Christ is center in heaven. And he's preparing a place. What's this place? Ephesians 2. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole structure being joined together. 
grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So David's saying, God, I want to build you a house. I want to build you a house. Solomon, he finally allows Solomon to build him a house. And God's saying, man, I don't want to dwell in that house. You know where I want to dwell? I want to dwell in you. I don't want to dwell in that building. This is not God's house. Sometimes we use that phrase, welcome to God's house. This isn't it. This is a building. You are God's house. You are where God dwells. The Holy Spirit lives inside you and he's doing a great work in your life. He's going with you to work tomorrow or tonight. He's going to class with you. He's your helper. He's your counselor. It's not this building. So God's doing a great work. He's preparing a place. That place is you that he's living in for right now. And then it's going to be permanently in heaven with him. Next one, number three. I will give you rest from all your enemies. You look at this and David has rest. Um, but then there's like with this passing on to this dynasty, you don't see rest. They fight all the time. It's all, still fighting in Israel. So can God not keep this promise? There's something greater God's doing in this passage. It's, God's not saying I'm giving you rest from the Ammonites, the Malachites, the Philistines. He's giving you rest from the greatest enemy that you'll ever have. Sin and death. That's what Jesus does for you. Jesus gives you rest from your greatest enemy, which is sin and death. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Christ wants to give you rest today. Some of you are still fighting. It's like you're trying to kill sin. You're trying to defeat it permanently. Jesus did that. You have to embrace what he did for you. Now, the old man, the old self is still alive inside us, so we've got a battle. But ultimately, the victory is ours. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We stand victorious today. We win because of Christ. And so we just keep limping along, pun intended, and, and, and we just keep moving through life. And, and, and we have no enemy. Christ is for us. Who can be against us? Let's keep moving forward. Let's keep moving forward. Don't quit the fight today. God defeated our enemy. We will have rest. It's a promise. Next one. Number four, I will raise up your offspring. So what, what is this talking about? This is a picture of Christ. Isaiah 9, this is a very familiar passage to us for Christmas time. Uh, we do Isaiah 9 all the time. Uh, I want you to think about Isaiah saying this. Isaiah saying this, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, okay? So there's son, child, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. So this child is unique. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Those are really important titles given to this child. Of increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. 
That sounds like a crazy promise to the people of Israel, right? On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So here Isaiah is saying, this child of David shall reign forevermore. So even Isaiah is understanding that this promise in 2 Samuel uh, was meant for this future child. That he, understand, he understood it to be the son or descendant of David. We see this in Romans 1. Romans 1, 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, speaking of guys like Isaiah, concerning his son, this offspring, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So we see it. Jesus fulfills this, that he will raise up his offspring. Number five, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. We've talked about this. How in the world can this be so? We've talked about how this family, this this. This is one family that goes back from Adam to, to, to Noah to Abraham to David. And at some point, it's like this family tree got cut down. And you just kind of lose it. Like, you're like, where did it go? And like later in the prophets, like, you start to see like, well, there's no king of David. And the, the tree is just dead. But this is the beautiful part. There was a stump that was left. The tree had been Knocked over, but there is a remnant, a stump left. Isaiah 11, look at this. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch of his roots shall bear fruit. So here's this picture that the family tree, booms knocked over. You got the stump, the stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's father, so he fits in that family tree. And out of that stump, you're going to see this shoot, this branch. It's going to come. It's going to bear fruit. Who is this branch? Christ. Christ is keeping it together. His family's crazy, but yet you can't stop Jesus. Enemies can come in and tear the tree down, but you can't, you can't keep Jesus from doing what he came to do. Last one, I will be to him a father. John 20, verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing you may have life in his name. This is so beautiful. John ends his gospel this way. that Everything he's writing is trying to point you to believe that Jesus is the Christ. That he's that, he is that all. Christ means uh, Messiah, Savior. That you believe that Jesus is the Savior, that offspring. That he's the Son of God that they've, everybody's been looking for. Since Genesis 3.15. And that by believing you may have life in his name. And so I want to invite the band to come back this morning. And that's, that's kind of where I leave you today. Is, is that who you think Jesus is? Is he this fulfillment of this promise from Genesis 3 that we've been searching for all summer? Is he the fulfillment? And that through Jesus, is that where you're finding life is that where you're finding joy this morning or are you still trying to like climb this ladder
I, 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 I love this quote. Um, one writer says this about this, this stump. It says, out of the stump came one tender branch that would grow right into a crown of thorns, right into a rugged cross, right into a ladder, your ladder back to God. That's what Jesus is. He's your ladder back to God. That, that you can't get there yourself. There's no tower of Babel that, that you can get to the heavens. That anything that you try to do with your hands is going to fall short. But if you cling to Christ, you will find rest. He has defeated all your enemies. He's made a way. He's prepared a place. He's done everything necessary for you to have life and life to the fullest. So whatever you're chasing after this week, whatever you got anxiety and depression about, look to Christ and see where you think he's not being sufficient. And I promise you that he is sufficient. And if you need help finding that, come talk to me. Use this Connect card right on the back. Man, I'd love to have help. I just don't have joy in my life. Put your name, put in that box in the back, and uh, we'll contact you. Our, my, my desire is for you to see Christ high and exalted, that he is sufficient for you to live out an incredible life. So we want that for you. We're, we want to limp through life together. We want to encourage one another. And Christ, he, he wants that for you. So let me pray for us. We're going to continue, continue to stand and sing about this promised one this morning. Lord, uh, thank you so much for this morning. I pray that you would just uh, be made much of today, that we would highly exalt your name. That you are the fulfillment that for thousands of years people were looking for the fulfillment yet we find it all in you, Lord. So may we trust you. May we stop trying to climb up a ladder made by our hands, and may we climb up that ladder that was made from that stump of Jesse. God, you're so good. I pray this in Christ's name.